has a lot of information. So we decided to make this a two-parter. This episode is part one of the murder of Tony Henthorne. And then next Wednesday, we will be with you for part two. So the case that we're getting into this week is one that is very likely to enrage you. I'm going to tell you right now, this monster's lies controlling his exploitation and abuse of kind and nurturing women will make you want to turn your living room into a rage room. Like, you'll legitimately smash your lamps. You better not touch my lamps. So, for fair warning, this case details murder, abusive, and manipulative behavior that some listeners may find triggering. The main source we used for this episode was Caleb Hannon's book, The Accidents, which is an excellent read for anyone who would like to check it out. But anyway, for those of you who are still with us, here we go. Tony Bertolet was born in Jackson, Mississippi to Bob and Yvonne Bertolet. Tony's parents had married young, worked hard, and earned themselves a small fortune. They had held on to their humility and hadn't forgotten about their beginnings. Tony was the middle child with an older brother, Barry, and a younger brother, Todd. Tony's brother, Barry, remembered that as a child, Tony did not like being told what to do. And she even fought off the bullies of her younger brother when she needed to. Tony also ran track and played basketball in high school, and she suffered a stress fracture of her ankle and torn ligaments in her knee that required surgeries and future knee problems. As an adult, Tony had struggled to find love, which never made any sense to her mother, Yvonne. She was a beautiful blonde and confident in her medical profession, which Yvonne knew could be unwelcoming to women. Yvonne, the medical pioneer of the family, had been a surgical nurse at a time when surgeons used to freely tell her that she should be at home raising babies. Yvonne was used to responding, how are you going to do this without me? Like her mother, Tony also went into medicine and specifically chose ophthalmology to ensure that she'd have time to raise kids because eyes aren't usually the organs that require a surgeon to come back to work at all hours of the day and night. Her dream of having kids was always there, but her confidence in her career unfortunately did not extend to her image. Tony's first husband, a dentist who had taken too many of the drugs that he was meant to prescribe, had turned mean and had a habit of tearing Tony down. After that ill-fated first marriage, Tony had found increasing comfort in religion. First Baptist, where her second wedding would be, became her safe haven always wanted to throw herself into helping others. Tony counseled many fellow congregants through depression, breakups, and personal crises. Those interactions left an impression on her that what men wanted and needed, above all, was loyalty and faithfulness. And in Tony's mind, that seemed to match exactly with the teachings of the Bible. A man should be the head of the household, Yvonne recalls Tony saying to her. Yvonne, more pragmatic than her daughter, had responded, what if he's an idiot? So basically, Tony's mom is the mom that every woman who puts too much trust in a man just because he's a man needs. So we know that Tony is looking for love. Well, she meets a guy named Harold. Harold and Tony met on the dating app Christian Matchmaker, and Harold's profile makes it easy to see why someone like Tony would find him instantly appealing. 
For the past 10 years, read his profile, I've been working for a national firm as a development consultant for not-for-profit organizations like churches, ministries, and hospitals. Though that kind of career may seem more do-gooder than lucrative, Harold insisted that the churches he worked for got what they needed and Harold simply took a cut. And he told Tony's father, Bob, those cuts were so large, he often made more on one deal than Tony made in her whole year. Everyone believed Harold to be a millionaire who was going to treat Tony right. And he told everyone in Tony's family that he made enough money that Tony would never have to work again. After meeting on the app, Harold flew from his home in Colorado to Mississippi to meet Tony in person for the first time. On their first weekend together, they decided to get engaged. Tony's family appreciated that Harold was gregarious and outgoing, thinking that he would be a good complement to the shy and sometimes socially awkward Tony. But Harold got mixed reviews from Tony's friends right from the start. Ginger Wilson was her best friend in Jackson who helped her run her busy practice. Tony also chose her as her matron of honor for her wedding. From working with her, Ginger recalls that Tony wasn't very interested in numbers and bookkeeping and would rather focus on helping people. And though she likened Harold's smile to that of a used car salesman, Ginger thought Harold seemed to be good at dealing with money and that he might be a good fit for her friend who had no patience for such things. However, when he visited Tony's practice in Jackson, Ginger recalled Harold saying that while he was online dating, he put together financial profiles of the three women he was considering, one of them being Tony. And this struck Ginger as odd. She had also witnessed Harold pluck Tony's credit card from her purse while she was in the bathroom to pay for their lunch. And she couldn't help but observe that the confident suits, red lipstick, and perfume that Tony had enjoyed wearing to work prior to Harold soon disappeared due to the fact that Harold just didn't like them. It was sad, but Tony seemed to be changing to meet his needs. Tony's friend, Allison Talley, had a more positive take on Harold. She remembers Tony telling her about one of her trips to Colorado with Harold prior to the wedding. He had taken her up to a lake in the mountains and walked until a cabin was in view. He told her that he wanted a vacation house like that someday and convinced her to go inside with him. Inside was a picture of Tony and Harold and Harold revealed to her that the cabin was his, and he'd bought it before the death of his first wife, who never had a chance to visit. But now it could be theirs. So their love life was moving fast, and Harold and Tony got married. Their wedding happened on September 30th, 2000, at the First Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Tony was 38, and Harold was 45. Both families were in attendance, but Harold's side, the Henthorns, were actually outnumbered by the Rochelles, Harold's in-laws, from his previous marriage to his late wife, Lynn. From what Harold had told them, the Bertolets knew that Lynn had died tragically in a car accident five years earlier. The continued support and closeness between Harold and her family seemed to be a good sign to Tony's family. Though Harold's father had died of a heart attack years earlier when Harold was in college, his mother, Marguerite Henthorne, was most definitely at the wedding. And during the reception, a drunken Marguerite had said something to Tony's mother, Yvonne, that made her feel less assured about Harold's relationship with the Rochelles. Can you believe, Marguerite had said, the Rochelles think that Harold had something to do with his first wife's death. 
Yvonne didn't know what to think or say, and therefore said nothing until Marguerite wandered off. Don't worry, we'll circle back to that later. Soon enough, Harold and Tony moved to Colorado to start their married lives. Harold and Tony soon moved to Colorado. They had sold Tony's practice to a nice ophthalmologist. But according to most, this was a decision that Tony didn't actually want deep down. Though Harold had always said his job would allow him to work from anywhere and Tony had a thriving practice in Mississippi, somehow he convinced Tony to leave everything behind and start over. He was always complaining about some aspects of the South, the weather, his allergies, the thick accents he viewed with contempt. And according to Tony's friend Ginger, Harold had been taking more and more control. Despite not being qualified to do so, he interjected himself into Tony's practice, wanting to see her schedule or look at the books or tell her employees how to do their jobs. And Tony, who was otherwise so confident at work, seemed to shrink whenever he was around. Even after she'd sold the practice, Ginger had begged Tony not to go to Colorado. But what she didn't realize was that Tony and Harold had already bought a house there and had gotten it shortly after the wedding. Once they had moved, Tony's friend Allison sometimes came to visit and spent time at their vacation cabin, but Tony was rarely around and she rarely got one-on-one time with her. Once while visiting and getting rare alone time with Tony, Allison asked her, how is life in Colorado? Tony for once actually answered honestly, saying, being married to Harold is hard. And they kept driving and the subject was dropped because there are some things a good Christian wife just didn't talk about. Despite Harold's claims of wealth and promises to provide for Tony, it was actually Tony's parents who had provided them the down payment for their house in Colorado, and her younger brother Todd paid for the reception, spending $3,000 that Harold said he was good for but never paid back. And it wasn't that the Bertolets didn't have money to give. They were happy that their hard work allowed them to provide for their children. Their investments and the oil fields they come to own would provide enough that none of the Bertolet children needed to work, though all of them did. So Tony's parents were starting to take note of what some might call red flags. Yvonne tried to speak to her daughter about her concerns, questioning the vagaries and inconsistencies of Harold's job and work travels. She wondered if he even had a job or was maybe having an affair. But Tony said, if you ask too many questions, I'll suffer the consequences. What she meant was that Harold, ever the control freak, needed things done his way. And suffer the consequences meant listening to Harold speak until he got his way, which he always did. Also, Harold seemed to be controlling her phone. Whenever Yvonne called to speak to her daughter, Harold was always on the line too and did most of the talking. Tony was always in the background in the distance as if she were standing on the other side of the room. Within a few years, Harold and Tony had the baby that they were hoping for. On June 29, 2005, Tony and Harold Henthorne's daughter Haley was born and she was practically a medical miracle. Tony was 43 years old and had suffered two miscarriages and also had endometriosis, a painful uterine condition that made it harder for her to get pregnant. As Haley grew up, the family's annual holiday cards, which Harold always wrote, seemed to indicate a pattern. 
The winters were always filled with trips up to the cabin and time on the ski slopes, though Tony's knee prevented her from skiing. February was the daddy-daughter Valentine's ball for Harold and Haley. Spring was when the family went to Florida to visit Harold's dear aunt, Nan. September found the Henthorns in the Outer Banks in North Carolina, splitting a beach home with some of Harold's old friends. Then Tony would fly home, and Harold and Haley continued the vacation up the coast, stopping in Dewey Beach, Delaware, to see his brother and grandparents. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to see his first wife's parents. And then Baltimore, to see even more friends. And never did any of these trips include a pass through Mississippi to visit the Bertolais. Honestly, it seems like Harold didn't want to visit them because he knew that they were suspicious of him and didn't want to be found out. But from what everyone could tell, and especially if you believed Harold's letters and boasting, he and Tony were doing great in Colorado. Harold made it clear that many of these trips involved work. One year during a trip to Florida that included visits to Disney World for Haley, Harold stayed for a few days for some fundraising meeting and picked up a lead that resulted in a new contract. There were projects in Salt Lake City, Park City, Las Vegas, Rapid City, and Wyoming. Though things had slowed considerably during the economic downturn, so far as one contract has ended, there has been another to replace it. Tony, meanwhile, seemed to be doing great at her practice too. According to their letters, which again, Harold always wrote, Tony loved her job and was learning to trust God instead of worrying so much about things that might happen. What Tony had to worry about wasn't clear and was never explained. And then what can only be referred to as the cabin incident occurred. Lee Hedick and his wife, Rory, were Haley's godparents and always watched Haley during Harold and Tony's yearly romantic getaways to celebrate their wedding anniversary. Harold and Lee had met years ago in the 80s during Bible study and had remained close friends. It was after 10 p.m. on Memorial Day weekend in 2011 that Haley Hedick got a phone call when he was already in bed. Harold was on the other line and let him know that there had been an accident. He wanted to know if Lee could come out to the cabin to take care of Haley. When Lee arrived, Harold had to rush to see Tony at the hospital, and it wasn't until later that Lee found out what was going on. Harold told Lee that he had been cleaning up when he had tossed a piece of lumber off the cabin's deck and accidentally hit Tony in the neck. Lee couldn't make sense of what Harold was saying. The deck, which Lee had helped build, looked clear of any debris, not like the construction zone Harold was describing. And Harold wasn't the type of guy to be so careless. He was careful and methodical, and the idea of him dropping a piece of wood on his wife's head didn't make sense. Lee agreed to drive Haley back to his home until everything settled down. Based on what Harold had told him about Tony's condition, Lee expected to hear from him again that weekend to arrange picking up Haley. But Sunday came and went without a call. So too did Monday. The holiday weekend was almost over and Lee and his wife were due back at work the next day. The incident itself had been odd. Harold's lack of communication was even stranger. Lee finally called Harold and asked when he was planning on picking up Haley. Harold wanted to meet him halfway to hand Haley off, but Lee, already annoyed, declined and said he would drop her off at the house. 
When Lee and his wife arrived, Harold greeted them at the door, but didn't invite them in and hardly gave them a proper thank you. Right before Lee and Rory left, they could see Tony behind Harold wearing a robe and having just come out of the shower, she was moving gingerly and, according to Lee, glaring in Harold's direction. For the next few weeks, Harold did what he could do to downplay the accident at the cabin. Tony wasn't really hurt. She was recovering just fine, in fact. The cabin incident was such a non-event that the Burleigh family didn't even find out about it until months later. When they learned about the details, they were shocked. Tony hadn't just been hit by a small piece of wood. She had been knocked to the ground by a large piece of lumber. Sometimes Harold called it a 2x4, sometimes a 2x6. He told one emergency responder that the beam was 20 feet long. Tony's injuries were so bad, even worse for a surgeon. She'd suffer a small fracture in one of her vertebrae, had incredible pain in her shoulder blades, and lingering numbness in her fingers of her left hand. And nobody was buying the idea that the cabin incident wasn't a big deal. When December rolled around, Tony headed back down to Mississippi to see a sick relative without Haley or Harold. Tony's mother, Yvonne, realized that this was the first time she'd actually spoken to her daughter one-on-one without Harold, either in the room or on the phone, in more than a decade. She took the opportunity to talk to her daughter about the cabin incident, which was the biggest red flag in a chain of many. For one, Harold and Tony lacked money in a way that was inexplicable. Yvonne and her husband had given the couple nearly half a million dollars to help buy their home, replace appliances, and take trips. Harold controlled finances, but Tony had told Yvonne that when she'd gotten a glimpse of their accounts, she was always surprised by how little was actually there despite their parents' generosity and the income that came from both their jobs, especially since Tony had been working full-time again for years. Yvonne was straight with her daughter. I don't think Harold is working. I don't think he's been working for a long time. And I think he's been living off his first wife's insurance. She thought his and Tony's constant need for money was proof of it. And though she kept this thought to herself, Yvonne thought that Harold's constant work travels were perhaps proof that he was seeing another woman. Yvonne had tried to get more details about the cabin accident, but Harold typically brushed her off, saying, it was nothing, Miss B., But Tony told her mother that she was actually below the deck on the ground picking up some things at Harold's request when the piece of wood struck her. She told her mother that if she hadn't been bent over to pick something up a second earlier, the wood wouldn't have hit her right on the back of the head. The cabin incident was not minor and was in fact nearly fatal. Tony told Yvonne that she thought she was inches away from being killed, and Yvonne didn't mince words. I don't think that was an accident at all. She was actually telling Tony that she believed Harold had been trying to hurt her. She said Tony had a sad look on her face, but said nothing. So Yvonne said, you do what you want to, but you should be very careful, and I would not go anywhere alone with this man. If you have to go somewhere, at least have Haley go with you. Yvonne hoped Tony would say, I will, but instead, she said nothing at all. Yvonne wasn't the only person growing suspicious of Howard. He was rubbing Tony's co-workers in Colorado the wrong way, too. 
At Tony's new job in Denver, Associates in Eye Care, she shared an office with Tammy Abrascado. Like most people in the office, Tammy had come to like Tony quite a bit, but didn't care for Harold at all. Harold made a bad first impression at a company Christmas party, and things got worse from there. He seemed to be everything his wife wasn't. Phony, where she was sincere, talkative, where she was quiet, willing to play the expert on any and every subject, while she chose her words with such care. It didn't take long before Tammy and her coworkers were literally drawing straws to see who would have to sit next to the Henthorns at holiday parties. When Tony accepted an offer to buy into the practice and become a partner, things got even worse. Tony and her colleagues had monthly meetings at a restaurant. Harold was the only spouse to show up, even though he'd never been formally invited. And on top of that, he did most of the talking. Harold was the reason Tammy suspected that Tony had begun staying at work so late. Technically, Tony was part-time, but for a few years, she had been coming in before her shift and staying long after. Tammy would catch Tony playing a game on her computer or contributing to one of the Christian advice sites she frequented instead of going home. Later, some of the advice Tony had given on such a site was discovered, and it may give a clue as to why she didn't just leave Harold. A woman was asking if she should leave her cheating spouse. Tony responded, Marriage is an institution ordained by God as the perfect environment in which to nurture children. It was intended that a man and a woman become so uniquely bonded that they become like one body. Men are called to love their wives as much as they love themselves and as much as Christ loves his bride, the church, unconditionally and sacrificially. Women are called to look to their husbands as the authority in the home and submit to their guidance, just as the church follows Christ. Divorce, then, is like ripping your own body apart. So, although it's the saddest thing in the world, it's clear that Tony was never going to leave Harold, no matter what he did. And then Tammy, who again did not care for Harold, got a call about helping him plan a sweet surprise for Tony. Harold asked Tammy to tell a white lie. He wanted her to dummy up Tony's schedule for the afternoon of September 28th. It was a Friday and the beginning of what he hoped would be a romantic anniversary weekend. He needed Tammy to make it seem as if Tony was busy, so he could surprise her with a trip up to the mountains. Tammy obliged and the plans were set. On the day of the 28th, Tony opened the door to the exam room and found her husband inside instead of a patient. Someone in her office recorded her surprise moment, and soon after, the couple were on their way to the mountains. That Friday night, Harold made many calls to friends and family, some he had spoke to often, and others he hadn't spoke to in years. But he sent them all a series of pictures of him and Tony, smiling and happy. And while Howard and Tony were away, Haley was staying with babysitter Katie Carville. Katie later said that Harold's controlling ways extended to their daughter. He kept the video monitor in her room, even though at seven years old, she was well past being a baby. 
Haley also had the earliest bedtime of any child Katie had babysat for, and Haley was often in bed by the time Tony came home from work. Katie also noted other strange and inconsistent behaviors of Harold's, such as telling her he had a 10 a.m. flight and then not leaving the house until noon. However, when Harold called asking for her to watch Haley for their anniversary weekend, she obliged. Around noon on that Saturday of that weekend, Harold called Katie. In a rare moment of consideration, he put Tony on the phone to speak directly to Haley. Because remember, he never let Tony speak on the phone by herself. Harold never voluntarily removed himself from any conversation in all communications especially any involving Haley, was always filtered through him. But in this rare moment, he allowed Haley and Tony to speak directly, and it struck Katie as odd. At around 5.55 p.m., Julie Sullivan fielded a 911 call from Harold Hanthorne, saying that he needed an Alpine rescue team immediately. Hello, my name is Harold Hanthorne. I'm in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Okay. I need, I need an Alpine mountain rescue team immediately. Harold was connected to a dispatcher at the Beaver Meadows Visitor Center, and Harold shared the reason for his call with her. My wife has fallen from a rock on the north side of Deer Mountain, Harold said. She's in really critical condition. How far did she fall, sir? 30, 40, 30 feet. I think 30 feet. Harold then gave her his very precise latitude and longitude. Harold was then informed that a ranger was on the way. Harold said he and his wife were between two steep outcrops at about 9,800 feet of elevation and 200 feet from the crest of a hill. The dispatcher, Elizabeth Rapala, thought that Harold gave more details than was typical. She asked him to tell her some things about the patient, and Harold said she is a white female, 50 years old, good health. She has respiration approximately 5 to 8 beats per minute. Her pulse is about um, between 60 and 80 beats per minute. Rapala asked, because he had been so specific with his health stats, if Harold was a paramedic. He seemed taken aback by the question before answering no. And when asked how he and his wife ended up there, Harold told Rapala we were having lunch on the outcropping. We came down a little trail and uh, she was trying to get a perfect picture, I think, and she fell. And I came around and she was unconscious. As far as his efforts for help go, Harold waved a small purple bag around to attract attention to his location for the rangers trying to find him. He started a small fire for the same reason. He said he knew CPR and that his wife's respiration was slowing down even more. And the big thing is that he kept insisting that he was worried about his cell phone because he only had half of his battery power left. He was told by another dispatcher helping with the call to turn his phone off for a short time and then turn it back on, at which point she would call back. Before he could get off the phone, Harold gave them the coordinates again. When asked if he was getting them off of a GPS device, he said no, he had an old topographical map. The time at this point was 6.12 p.m. Meanwhile, dispatcher Julie Sullivan got back on the phone and tried to walk Harold through CPR. Because Harold said he had already began CPR, Sullivan, who had walked people in distress through CPR over the phone over 200 times, 
expected him to be winded, as giving CPR is an athletic event. When she got on the phone with him, Harold was not winded. Confused, she asked if anyone was with him. He said no. She started going through her protocol, saying to clear any obstructions in her airways, do two breaths every 30 pumps, and so on. Harold grew impatient, saying, you're telling me exactly what I've been doing. She continued what was procedure, saying that she would help him count. Most people welcomed the guide, someone who could tell them if they were doing it right, and help them keep track of the numbers while their minds raced as they tried to save their loved ones. Harold, he didn't welcome any of this. He again said that his cell phone battery was low and that he had to hang up. As the rangers and dispatchers attempted to locate Harold, it became apparent he was in an area that few hikers ended up in. It was in fact typically only common to find mountain climbers with at least some experience there. It was a combination of cliff faces, giant rocks, and tall pines, and it was typically described as mixed technical. Meanwhile, Tony's brother Barry Bertolet checked his phone in Mississippi where he saw urgent text messages coming in from Harold. Barry, urgent. Tony is injured in Estes Park. Fall from rock. Critical, requested flight for life. EMT rangers on the way. Please come to Denver next flight. Low cell battery. Please return message. Barry responded and received another text from Harold telling him to pray. Barry gathered with family at his parents' house and kept texting Harold for updates. Through short messages on his phone, Barry and his family watched as Tony slowly died. Can't find Pulse. Help 10 minutes out. Finally, at 8.41 p.m. Mountain Time, Barry received the message he had been dreading. She's gone. When the ranger arrived, he saw the small fire that Harold created to attract help, and saw a woman laying on a rocky, uneven ground. He thought it was odd that Harold had placed Tony's head below her body, because typically you'd try to keep someone's head elevated after an injury. The ranger, Ranger Faraday, could tell quickly that concussion did a poor job of describing the woman's condition and that even head wound wasn't sufficient to describe the gigantic gash that stretched across her forehead. Whatever height she had fallen from, whatever object had broken that fall, had rendered an injury so violent that it had nearly removed her scalp. He told Harold that she was gone as soon as he saw that her eyes were open, her pupils dilated and fixed. At this point, Ranger Faraday switched from rescue mode to investigation mode. He asked Harold a simple question, what happened? Harold said they checked into the Stanley Hotel on Friday night, which by the way is the hotel that inspired the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, not foreboding at all. Woken up the next day to take a hike and left the trail because of the crowds. At some point, Tony had wandered off to look at some turkeys. She was preoccupied with getting the perfect picture. While he was looking down at his phone, Harold said he saw a blur out of the corner of his eye and realized his wife was gone. 
For most of the next hour, Faraday and the man could do nothing but wait while the other rangers made their way to the location. Harold spent most of his time on his phone, and when the other rangers finally arrived, it was 10 o'clock. After Barry received the text that his sister was dead, he tried to call Harold and it went to voicemail. Harold texted no cell signal, and yet a minute later surprised Barry by calling and telling him what had happened. And this time, Harold's account of what had happened changed. He told me they were walking along the trail, Barry remembered later and that Tony had lagged behind and sort of, I guess, fallen out of visual range. And so he had gone back to find her at that point and didn't see her on the trail. Barry was in shock, but noted that Harold seemed surprisingly calm. In later tellings of the events, Harold would tell Barry the trying to take a picture of Wild Turkey's version of the story that he had told Ranger Faraday. But not only was this not what Barry had originally been told by Harold, he couldn't imagine that his sister, a cautious 50-year-old woman with a history of knee injuries, would be so obsessed with getting a picture of a wild turkey, when wild turkeys were as common in Mississippi as squirrels. When Tony's father, Bob, learned that she had fallen to her death, his first words of response were, he pushed her. Looking back on that response, he said that that certainty had come from somewhere deep inside him. As he put it, my mind and body, they knew it. They put all of the facts over 12 years together and they knew it. She's gone were the most terrible words I've heard in my life. We decided that night that from now on, we've got to be Tony's voice. We've got to seek justice. We had to do whatever it took to get Haley away from Harold and back to Mississippi with her family. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.